0: So, not done with the jokes yet, we're going to have a little fun. Uh, but this is serious fun because the topic is, is one that is, is, is full of information. Growth models as we adapt and innovate with AI. Let's face it, raise your hand if you've been to a conference this year, virtually or in person. Have you been to any meeting? Keep your hands up if they mentioned AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've all been beat to death with the topic of AI. So, to take us into a new realm of AI and do it with, with something that is so exciting that FBEPP created, is it two years ago? Where's Sophia? Sophia Karakeva. You, you created this concept for the, the Media Intelligence Explained podcast, correct? Was it your brainchild? Oh, uh, yeah, she's being humble. She came up with the concept with others and recruited... These global, this global phenomenon of a team in Alicia Bors and Vladimir Petkov, the two stars over here to my right. <laughs> Alicia Bors is the product lead at RuePoint. Uh, it says Ireland, but aren't you living in Poland? Yeah? So uh, I've said she's in Ireland and Poland, and, and both countries are very fine countries. Vladimir Petkov, uh, uniquely positioned in Bulgaria is the uh, CEO of Identrix. Everyone, Vladimir, or as I call him, Vlado, the man. Uh, And as our guest today, the gentleman of every industry related to us, the man that just makes you feel like a higher quality person when he's in the room, Asim Food, impact research and measurement. Thank you, Doug.
1: Let's check how close should I speak. Uh, people call me that I'm, I'm the voice of the media intelligence industry because of this ISMR feelings uh, which my voice generates. All right, Carlos? Okay. Is this good enough? Yeah? Do you feel goosebumps? Okay. <laughs> Quick introduction of myself. My name is uh, Vlado Petkov. Friends call me Vlado. I'm the CEO of Identrix. My background is technology. So, obviously, this podcast, which was created from the Tech Commission in FIBEP, usually has a lot of technical uh, discussions, but we are not limited only with technical. So my background is technical. Before that, it was media, and before that, in really far away. Time. it was non-government organizations. Together with me is Alicia. Hi, Alicia.
2: Hi, hello. Can you hear me well? Okay, great. So, I'm uh, Alicia Morse, if you haven't heard like for the fourth time already, but I'm a product lead at RootPoint when I work at AI implementation in our everyday work. But my background is I'm a humanist, so I studied history, I studied political law, I studied psychology. So in this, contrary to um, Vladov, who is a tech person, I'm more a person who cares about ethics, person who cares about the human part. I care I
1: about ethics. Though. I, I, yeah. <laughs> let me finish. Most of the um, time.
2: And I also care very much about the impact that technology brings to human and their well-being. So we, I think we're very well balanced. And today, we also have a very esteemed guest with us, Asim Sood. Asim, could you please tell us like, two sentences about you and about your you know, involvement in AI so far?
3: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Asim Sood. I am the Chief Executive Officer of Impact Research and Measurement in India. I'm also the Chair of AMEC. And in the past, I've worked as a PR professional advising companies on their image management programs. And I've also worked as a research analyst with a consulting firm called McKinsey & Company. I'm not a tech background person, but I work with the McKinsey's business technology office. And at Impact, I've been working with the team. For several years, we've been experimenting with how AI can be used in the business that we are in.
1: Tell us more about Impact. Let's learn more about impact. What do you do, your experience, your business model?
3: So we started this firm in 2004. We are a news monitoring and news analysis company. We focus on print, online, social media and television as channels that we monitor and analyze. When we started, we wanted to be just a pure play measurement company and soon we realized that the quality of data that was available in the market wasn't good enough. We had to go down the value chain and start monitoring as well. And soon we realized that, yes, this is even more fun. So we were doing monitoring and analysis together. We had better control over the quality and quantity of data that we needed for our clients. Uh, We have uh, setups in 50 cities across the country, from where we are able to pick up content and bring it back for our clients for analysis. And we, we we're very lucky that we got a chance to be a member of FIBEP and a member of AMEC for several years now. I, I've been very lucky. There are so many people in the room that I, I know very, very well. And we've, I've attended many conferences, FIBEP conference, as well as AMEC conferences.
2: Before we go to our questions, Rada, would you like to, you know, give us some context about the recent AI developments and all of that? And then we'll start <laughs> interviewing or interrogating, we'll see. i yeah, see you. yeah,
1: yeah. I'm sure that in each session here, everyone will talk about AI. By the way, I really don't like the word AI. (laughs) I don't like that. I prefer educated machines or uh, very productive parrots or yeah. Yeah, I agree It
2: brings a lot of confusion with regular users.
1: Okay, let's call it an AI. By the way, just two days ago, I read an essay which pretty much says that general artificial intelligence is already here, but uh, we, because we are humans and we have biases, we cannot accept that. And they have this really interesting uh, example that when the first Practical computer appeared, ENIAC, which was really long time ago. Nobody at that time said that this is a computer. They thought that this is like a fancy calculator or something like that. But right now, from our perspective, we classify that as the first computer. So a lot of people think that actually general artificial intelligence is here because it's almost multimodal, uh, because we don't need to train it in particular tasks, etc. So I'll just put this view here just to set up the stage uh, for the whole conversation uh, with the Asim, a little bit of background uh, for me. First of all, okay, what happened? Exactly this period of time, just a year ago, ChatGPT was not released, so I'm sure that a lot of companies were preparing budgets and especially machine learning and deep learning companies like mine when we prepared budgets we thought that the technology which we are going to sell or the pipelines the automation services that we are going to sell will be yeah like the year before that and suddenly chat gpt was released and changed all of that like literally erased all of that and pretty much changed the rules. So, What was the real revolution? The real revolution was the way we use the AI. Previously, you need, like, there was data scientists. You need a lot of training data to train the models. Then you needed a data engineering team to create pipelines, to collect data, transform data, clean data in order to do something. So all of that was erased. And right now, we have this uh, box, and we (laughs) just go to that box and give command which we call a prompt. And I see a lot of prompt engineers here today. My favorite new profession, by the way, (laughs) which was born just uh, a month after ChatGPT was appeared. And it died very soon after that. So uh, this pretty much shows how fast things started to move in really real unprecedented scale. I'm dealing with uh, large language models for the past four years, and I thought that they will automate only abstracting. No, uh, they automated a lot of other stuff. So. The first thing is, uh, we saw this new technology which appeared. Everyone was very excited. A lot of companies implemented that via the OpenAI API. So everyone had this sudden FOMO that they are missing out, and they integrated OpenAI. So this happened. Then what we saw was a huge reaction of other companies similar to OpenAI, which really they they understood that in a way they. Lost the game because we have uh, we have this killer product in the wild. And when someone says AI, it was like a synonym with ChatGPT at that moment. So what they did, they open sourced most of their work. What is open source? This is yeah, or free and open source software. This is when you have something and you release it under a free license like GPL, Creative Commons, or whatever. Pretty much you allow all your users to study how your software is built, uh, you allow uh, them to modify your software, to download the software, and all of this is legal. So, this happened. We saw companies like Facebook releasing a lot of uh, tech in the wild, uh, especially, by the way, if you're really not into that, you need to check Llama, uh, and Llama chat models. They are, you can download them and you can tweak them. If you have the proper infrastructure, you can load it on your hardware. So, because of all of these open-source of the models, as a reaction to ChatGPT, suddenly we, as an industry, and not only us, but yeah, we as an industry had access to tools which just a few months ago was accessible only to Mark Zuckerberg and the top brass in Facebook. And we started to play with these tools. Then, these tools were not perfect. So, these companies, they started to compete each other. First of all, they started to buy each other and, in a way, concentrate the model development. But they started to compete each other, release new models, again, free and open source models. So, the next llama model, Facebook claims, which will appear this January, just a few months ago, they claim that it will have the capabilities of GPT-4 which is enormous like these are literally millions of dollars of investment which are publicly available so everyone with the right skills can download that and play with it and create value for their company. The licensing is allows commercial use unless you have like a lot of users, something like that. But if you're a small enterprise or medium enterprise, you can do that. So that's in the mix right now. So each company has access to this. So right now we are in the phase of they call it distillation. If you're not into machine learning and deep learning, distillation means that they try to make the models smaller. By making them smaller, they make them way more efficient. So, we have the features. Usually these models, they come in different sizes. The smaller one, we call it the smaller llama, which is like seven billion parameters, which is a marvel of technology, even right now, even with this shape. Uh, and that thing could run on almost consumer grade hardware. You need like a video card, like a proper mm-hmm. video card, and you can run in there. So, all of this is happening, it's becoming smaller, more efficient, and everyone has access to that. This is, this is the technical background, if you can say so.
3: And if I may add, yeah, please. so when I learned about this concept for the first time, how large language models work, and when somebody explained to me that there are two parts to it, you have a transformer and you have a lot of data. And when I was told that this transformer, which was created with so much effort, is actually now available to everybody in the world. So a student in Singapore University has access to it. A student in a small city in India has access to this transformer. And what differentiates one model from the other is only the data that you you push into this this transformer. So Google, Facebook, tomorrow FIBEP we could have our own model because that transformer is available to everybody. And imagine the large amounts of data we are all sitting with. If we were to push all this data to this transformer, we will have our own model, which could be more powerful than OpenAI.
1: That's the idea. When you are able to download We call them foundation models. So all of this open source tech, we call it foundation models. Big companies like Facebook, they pay the price. They have all the hardware, they pay millions of dollars for them to be built, and we can download and fine-tune. The word is fine-tune. So we can take them, adapt them for our needs, and in a way, use them in a safer way. And by saying safer, (laughs) there are a lot of risks connected with uh, the whole AI. This is like 50% of my time when I deploy something, 50% of the time for that is not not data science anymore it's not data engineering it is legal <laughs> so uh, there is a lot of legal considerations and let's go uh, to the risks part of uh, because this is part of the context we cannot skip that but we need it for our conversation somehow
2: i'm always that person who's like talking about the cons of everything but okay uh, to be completely open i'm a very big AI enthusiasts or large language yes. models enthusiasts, but I do think that we need to remember all the risk before going into the game and one of the most important is, of course, the data leakage. If you are not deploying hmm. your language models uh, locally, uh, there is always a risk. We yes. learned that, uh, Samsung actually learned that the hard way. Yeah, that's uh, the
1: canonical example. Yeah. Uh, just, just say a few, like for the, for the people who... Missed out.
2: Yeah, so they used like ChatGPT, and they uh, the engineers
1: in Samsung. Yeah, they
2: pushed some of their code into ChatGPT, and they it became uh, publicly available through ChatGPT because they didn't think about that the the data is not isolated. Mm. So now everyone has access to it. Yeah. So that's what the knowledge leakage is actually a big risk if you're not doing your own local language models. The other risk that we are talking, you just talked about are the regulations and the, yep. all the legal stuff that is like, you know, hanging yep. above us. The European Union still didn't pass the bill, but it will probably happen somewhere in the future and we still don't know what's yep. the final shape of that. And also some countries are doing some like irrational movements like they just ban it entirely in mm. the country, which is like... A very radical step, but it just—it just comes from the fact they are not well informed, and I think we, as an industry, also have a, a responsibility to be that people who will uh, inform the government, who will go to the universities, who will inform our clients, of course. The other thing that is also we uh, want to talk about is the ethics, because with the, all these language models, as you say, they are all based on data, and the data that you use is the most important thing. Is the data that you're using reflecting the world that we live in, which is biased, or is it reflecting the world that we would like to live in. So, for example, if you are doing AI that will help you choose the right candidate for a job, is the model that you using it for fed only the data with, for example, white men. And if you're a woman of color, for example, you're being discarded just because of your uh, sex and your skin color or your surname even. And the other thing that is Big risk is that uh, a lot of these models work as uh, black box models, so we don't really know why the certain result happened. We can kind of predict or like hypo- hypothesize how this happened, but it also brings another dilemma because if we have a black box model and then we build a tool or a box on the machine that will explain with a probability how th- it came to that result, we can actually do something that we call fair washing, which is okay. We have this biased model. Yeah. And then we are using a fair model to fair wash it. And we say, you didn't get the job because, you know, this, this and that. Because, for example, you misspelled the company name in your CV or yeah. something like that. So you can build a racist model, for example, and still say, no, it's very fair. Look at the results of the you know, fair check
1: yeah <laughs> about the regulation part mm. uh, for sure regulations are coming and they pose a risk because we don't know how they will affect us actually or and they will be different in the different markets of course the EU which is the regulation powerhouse yeah in Europe we produce a lot of regulations and we are the champions in that they are working for almost two years already on the so-called AI act but because it's the EU we expect that in a way this will be the standard still during the process of the development of that act, ChatGPT appeared, change the rules, so they're postponing it again, maybe to, in a way, update it for the new reality, which pretty much shows how dynamic the situation is. So we, as strategists, need to, in a way, just unveil the crystal ball and say what will be the regulation just a few months ago. But for me, the the biggest threat is actually the knowledge leakage. We didn't mention it. We described, like the Samsung case, that's the data leakage. It is straightforward. You send data, the data unintentionally got reinforced into the model, so it was leaked. But it is still valuable in our industry because most of the works we send to large-language models, they can become part of that. So potential copyright infringements and the most important one, the knowledge leakage part. What is the knowledge leakage? We, as organizations, we proud ourselves that we have a lot of industry or domain-specific knowledge. Everyone here can swear and sign a document that the researchers' knowledge is the most valuable knowledge within their organization, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not the technology, it's the researchers' and the knowledge. So, uh, the real danger here is that the more we work with, I call it a centralized AI, and I'm a really huge optimist of AI, but not the centralized one. Not because it's not going to be capable, but because it's going to extract all the knowledge from our organizations, reinforce it into the model, so the more we work with that, like all these APIs that were created and integrated into products, they will be used to extract knowledge from our researchers, editors, analysts, etc. Call them. We usually call them in, with different names. And the more we work with the centralized AI, the more knowledge will be extracted from organization, reinforced into the model, and because Google, OpenAI, Facebook, etc., they don't value our knowledge, they will commoditize it, which is extremely sad. Like, they will sell access to this for $20, this is OpenAI, or $10, because it's Google and they need to compete, so like, someone cares. But is it 10 or 20? And this is the real danger, that we'll lose this, we'll lose this advantage. And by the way, this is the final risk. So I really think that we set up the stage. We covered all the technical parts. We covered all the possible risks. So it's not just shiny new models capable. Like we will download them, implement them, fine-tune them, and everyone, like unicorns will appear and we will be happy. So there are a lot of risks. So this is the situation. Very dynamic, very risky. We are at the same part of the this year. So some of the companies are preparing budgets. Some of the companies are creating innovation strategies, etc. So, I assume we reach the point when we need to introduce the topic. The topic is growth in these conditions. So, everyone is thinking, okay, is there actually a field for growth? Isn't this like a survival game? What do you think? Are we going to be able to adapt? Uh, what is the proper culture to adapt? What is the strategy to innovate with so many moving parts on the tech regulatory Customers are changing, big companies are are sucking out knowledge from our organizations, so how to grow in this, or if we cannot grow, is this a survival game?
3: I remember having a conversation with the leader of a public relations firm about 12 months ago, and I asked this person, are you scared of all these new technologies, or do you see them as opportunities? And at that time, the person said, you know what, these technologies are getting better every day. But they are not as creative as the people that we have in our team. We are a business of creative professionals. I heard this so many times. In fact, I believed in this statement. And I also thought, you know, we, have a, we add a layer of human touch. We need this. About five months ago, one of the podcasts that I listened to, Planet Money by National Public Radio, they decided they're going to test this hypothesis. Can technology be as creative as humans? And I don't know how many of you have heard that podcast. Uh, The podcast is called Dial M for Mechanization. So they said, creating a podcast is a creative process. It's as creative as it can get. Can the technology create a podcast from beginning till the very end? Let's test that question. They reached out to Microsoft and ChatGPT and said, we want access to all the latest tools that you have, which are not available to public right now, and we're gonna test this hypothesis. They gave a brief to this model and they said, we want to create a podcast about the time when automated calling technology was introduced in call centers in the world. Because earlier when you had to call up somebody, you would call a number and say, connect me with this number and the person on the other end will pick up a wire, plug it in somewhere, dial some buttons and you'll be connected. When this automated technology came in, a lot of these people lost their jobs. So they said, we want to create a podcast about this. That was the brief. The technology came back with full script of a podcast, with examples, with names of characters, because technology said we need to add drama to this program so that we make it interesting for your, reader, for, for your listeners. The technology was given access to all the podcasts that NPR had created in the past. So it, it came up with a script which was very similar to how they would have created it, it even decided what are gonna be the names of the characters in that, in that drama that, that's gonna be created and uh, once uh, this team, when they were working on this podcast, they decided, let's figure out why were these names selected and one of the names selected as a lady who was who was the last lady to be fired on the on the drama. The name was the same as the last person reported in the press as a person who lost her job. The last person to lose her job in that role in US, that was the name of that person. So it connected millions of dots and came back with a very creative program. It did not stop there. They said, in a podcast, you have people speaking. So they decided we will pick up the voice of one of the presenters and ask technology to say it out. So if you listen to the podcast, there are two people speaking. One of them is technology. From beginning till end, entire script, dramatization, jokes, and even the voice of the podcaster. And I can challenge you that if you go back and listen to that podcast, you will not be able to identify which one is the real person and which one is technology. This is just one example. I've seen so many similar examples. And with these examples, it's absolutely clear that these technologies are getting ready to be able to do creative jobs as well. Now, let's look at our business. We are in the business of media intelligence. For several years, we've been using AI tools. We were using pre-trained models, using machine learning to do analysis and the products or the end product that we were creating was never complete because while we were improving levels of accuracy using these pre-trained models, the results had to be converted into insights for our clients. After ChatGPT was launched, even that gap has been bridged. So now, if you were to use all the learnings that you have using the pre-trained models that you have, you do the analysis, you put the analysis into tools like th- using these large language models, guess what? You can actually get the final report. So for, for businesses like ours, I think this is going to be a great game changer. One of our members on announced 30 days back, in fact, I was speaking with Oresti yesterday and he, he pointed out that they announced a month back that they will be reducing their staff strength by 50% because they have made advances in usage of AI tools. So I think they have about 417 people in, uh, in, in Europe and they will be reducing 210 odd jobs in that team because of their confidence in these models and how these models are ready to deliver end products to the customers. So I think these are gonna be really, really powerful.
2: So, using that example, do you think like this low-level products that we sell, like newsletter, like simple reports, that's something that's not gonna be on the market anymore? You will just go to a platform and just ask in the chat, create me a newsletter with the top five topics and send it to my board members, for example. So you think there is like no longer any job
3: for analysts to do that? Not at all. In fact, those tools are going to get even more powerful. Uh, my colleague and our global managing director at AMEC, Jonna Burke, is here in the room. I'm sure you would have seen one of her presentations. She, she draws this triangle and says, we're looking to deliver quality to our clients as fast as we can at lowest cost. So quality, speed, and cost is what we're looking at. And these tools are actually gonna give us something which we never had earlier, the speed and the cost advantage. Now, you talked about summaries. Our summaries can be delivered faster. Our summaries will be richer. So the product is gonna continue. We will be delivering the product, but we'll be using these technologies to deliver those products faster, cheaper, with the same level of quality that we always boast about, which is human touch.
2: There are some tools that are not yet available on the market that you would like to see that will help us in the media industry business. How do you see them evolve or what do we need to invent to make our job easier, more efficient, cheaper, but a higher quality product?
3: I may not be able to answer that about products because I'm not a techie, but I can tell you about use cases. One of my clients reached out to me and he said, "Uh, we're making a very big announcement. After this announcement, we have an interview lined up for the CEO with a person who's not been a friend of ours for many months. And they said, can you help me figure out what are the five difficult questions that this person may ask my CEO? So imagine taking this person's interviews from the last three years, looking at the announcement that the company is making, looking at similar articles that have been written about such announcements, putting it into this box and saying, please tell us which are the five toughest questions that the journalist may ask. And he didn't stop there. He said, what we'll do is we'll record this interview. So first, we've generated the questions, given those questions, then we will record this interview, and now can you take this recording, and before the story is filed, can you come back and tell me what is it that this person is gonna file? And these are like two very interesting use cases. In fact, the Planet Money podcast that I talked about earlier, there was a, there's, a, there's a beautiful uh, episode in that po- podcast where it, what happens is, The technology identified three people and said, when you're doing this podcast, let's make it even more compelling. We'll invite these three experts, and these experts are gonna come in and we'll ask them questions, and it'll make the podcast even more powerful. They asked the technology, so what are the questions we're gonna ask? It gave a list of five questions. So the podcaster asked the first question to the guest, and the guest said, wow, that's a brilliant question. Second question, again, great question. Third question, Wonderful question. And podcasters thought probably, you know, he, he's just making it up every time he's saying this is a great question. On the fourth question, the guest said, you know what, this is the difference between people, like experts like you, and technology. Technology could not have asked me this question. And that's when they had to break it to the guests that we're very sorry, we didn't tell you earlier. Everything that you're getting asked has been created by technology.
1: Okay, I want to go back to the newsletters abstracts the reporting the mini intelligence systems if we take a look at the value chain in our industry maybe on the lower end are the newsletters then we have these interactive dashboards which are fully automated so customers can go there in almost in real time monitoring what what's going on with their products brand etc then we have the reports then we have insights and the rest of the higher end of the value chain let's discuss the lower end with that vision that large language models obviously can do reporting they can write uh, a lot of people call large language models generative ai let's let's put it on the table here for some period of time everyone felt safe because chatgpt was limited to give answers uh, because it was trained on data uh, for uh, which was uh, back to 2021 if i'm not wrong and it was good to give like general answers which are the best restaurants in Singapore so maybe it gave answer which was relevant for that period of time just few weeks ago I believe it three weeks ago OpenAI declared that uh, they were able to link ChatGPT with a crawler so pretty much ChatGPT right now has access to the same data we have the big question here is don't you think that if uh, services like this has access to almost real-time data, because I'm sure that ChatGPT has access to Bing, because Microsoft backs up OpenAI. They provide infrastructure, they provide money, so I'm sure that they can give access to Bing, Bing indexes, all of the media websites, and everything which is openly available. So don't you think that the whole lower end of the value chain, again, this will be newsletters, uh, this will be reports, that they will disappear because nobody will need that and I mean me, nobody I'm not talking about us we as an industry which provide them I'm talking that the end customers will be able to go to ChatGPT, GPT Alicia tried to explain the use case but pretty much if OpenAI has access to all the data we have they can in a way the end users can just go to ChatGPT GPT and ask what is what happened with my brand in the last 24 hours in all the Polish media, for example. So if they're able to do that, and if they trust the model, with, or your own words, the technology is here, maybe this whole end of the value chain will disappear. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that? Do you think real danger or this is not going to happen? And then I have additional questions depending on what you
3: will answer. All right. Yeah. So first of all, I, I have a very different opinion to the use of word lower end. I think newsletters are not low-end products. If I were to tell you that I can give you all the stories that have been published in Singapore in the last 24 hours versus I will give you a one pager which tells you what is it that you should be spending your five minutes on to know before you go and talk to the media. Which one is more valuable? Because the second item is more like a newsletter. It's like you have thousands of articles, you have thousands of news pieces, but which are the five news articles that the CEO of my company should be reading before he talks to the press? And that is what a newsletter should be.
1: But it's not. Right now, so many companies, they don't do that. They sell different types of newsletters. Most of them are all the articles on a particular topic for a particular amount of time. These are the links and these are the abstracts and they're rearranged with prominence, something like that. So do you think that Is there any value of products like this with all these new new reality or these products will disappear and they will be substituted with the product you just explained
3: these products will evolve they will not disappear in fact that's the other part our clients are very busy people how much time do you think they take out especially the people on the business side do they take out every day to interact with what we create what we send what we have created on on a portal when we last checked with some of the CXOs, they don't even spend five minutes on the products that we deliver to them. How do we then ensure that we deliver to them something which is crisp, concise, to the point, helping them do something that they believe in? We work with a lot of clients wherein we create these news- newsletters for them. There's one client wherein the, the specification is, the scope is that the update that you send us cannot ever be more than a page. And I can promise you, there's not a single day in a working week when he would talk to anybody in the press before reading that one page update that we sent across to them.
2: Who does that job right now?
3: Right now, it's, it's, there's a person doing that job.
2: Okay, and they are familiar with your client, they know what they're interested in, they know Correct. what they, they're gonna ask, what questions they, they're gonna be asked and all of that, and do you think you can train a model to do that?
3: Yes, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Oh. There's a client of mine who writes very well. I love the way the person writes. Earlier, you know, I, I can't write like that, but I, I have a lot of ideas, the ideas that are required to write that article, but I can't write the piece like that. We actually reached out to the client and said, we're going to do this experiment wherein, with your permission, we'll take all your articles and we will put in our ideas and say, write the way this client would have written it. And yes, it works.
2: But I do like that idea, but that won't be a real opinion of that person. It's frozen in time and it, it won't evolve. And it's, it's not reflecting the real feelings or, like, thoughts that that person could have about this product or the thing that they are going to write about. And I think it's always going to be an imitation, and it's going to be less valuable.
3: Okay. In every communication, there are two parts to it. If I were to simplify it to a very basic level, one is ideas. What is the idea? What are the ideas? And the second is, how have you presented those ideas? How have you communicated those ideas? You know, right now, the impact that all this is having on the way we are hiring people is earlier, if there were two candidates, one candidate had a lot of ideas, but could not write that well. And there was a second candidate who had, instead of seven, he only had two ideas, but could write that very well. We would go for the can- I would go for the candidate who had a balance. But now with these technologies coming in, I'm actually looking for more ideas. I need this person who can give me seven ideas so that I can use these technologies to write them better.
1: What is more important right now in order to achieve growth, culture within the organization or investment in technologies?
3: Uh, that's a difficult question.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Finally. Okay.
2: And, it it, and, it, and it did it come from the AI.
3: Yes. <laughs> See, culture, is far more important, but if you want to grow further, you will have to invest in technology because that culture will only help you grow at a certain speed. That culture with investments in technology is going to help you grow faster.
2: I agree, but speaking of culture and taking into the consideration that we are in Singapore, and I also, when we were discussing a possible guest for, pot- for the live recording, I really wanted someone who will have a knowledge about the Asian markets, because for a lot of attendees today, we are not from here. There was a lot of questions in the previous talk with Amrita about how to adapt to Asian cultures, and that there's no something like an Asian culture, because every country is completely different, and in every country you have so many different languages and religions and cultures and all of that. So as a media intelligence company, how should we navigate this like robust Asian landscape? Can you share some of your insights?
3: Uh, This is a very good question because right now, this is a challenge. This is a challenge. It's a challenge because we have so many languages in Asia. If you look at all the data that has been fed into the models that exist right now, it's mostly English, mostly Western. Uh, In fact, one of the examples that somebody shared with me was, I'm sitting in India, close to Diwali, and if I ask one of the models to tell me, what should I make for a family dinner, because I'm expecting guests there is a possibility that the model is gonna tell me how to create a Western dish using the ingredients that I've added. There's a big possibility because a lot of local dishes, the, the recipes of those local dishes are in local languages. So I think there is a long distance that needs to be covered till all this data makes its way into the models that either we create or somebody else creates, uh, we will have a big gap. But gap then also means opportunity. So. There's a lot of opportunity out there.
2: Potential business idea, please write it down. Okay, because we are recording live to everyone who's maybe listening later in time, uh, we have a unique opportunity for our audience to ask questions to Asim, or maybe to Vado. Uh, I'm not taking questions at the moment. Or to
1: Alicia, <laughs> <coughs> primarily so, to Alicia. So
2: if there are any questions for Asim, oh, we there have one. one
1: from Alessandro. Okay, so we, we start with the heavyweight <coughs> questions. Or no?
4: I have two questions, uh, actually. The first one is um, many digital environments started with multiple players, and then there was the, the winner-takes-it-all syndrome, so only one was left. Think about search engines or social media. And prices raised, prices grew. So what, was, what used to be for free uh, was not, and, and, and price keep on rising. Do you think that this would be the case also for this kind of engines, uh, LLM, etc.? or will there be many differentiated players? Second question, um, Alicia talked about uh, prejudices that show, so you won't be hired because you are the wrong sex or color or age and so on. Now, these systems, they do not invent anything. They just reflect what are, are our own prejudices. So, don't you think it's an opportunity? to bring in the open the way we actually think and act, well, not every one of us, of course, but but a lot of people, and reflect on it and maybe start thinking and behaving in a different way.
3: Would you like to go first? You're the guest. Um, okay, let's look at the first question that you asked. My answer is I don't know whether the numbers are going to go up or not. I'm going to take a guess. My guess is that the numbers will go up. The cost is going to go up because right now these companies are spending... a spending tons of money in delivering those results to you, which they're not being compensated for. But that's not the reason why the cost is gonna go up. The cost is gonna go up because a lot of other companies are gonna start creating private models with data which is limited in their local environment. And that's the reason they will stop using these big models and then these companies which have pumped in so much money into creating these models, they will have to increase the fee. So that's my guess, I don't know. Your second question, About the biases. About the? About the biases. Biases. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's right or what's wrong. I'll I'll tell you a story. So um, the biggest talk point in every country right now is politics, government, who's in power. I was talking to a group of PR professionals earlier, and they told me that, do you know who could be the biggest customer of these technologies? That's the political parties who are trying to change the perception of people to get into power. So imagine if they slowly start adding content, which is in line with their ideology, into these models which are being created right now by offering them stuff for free. So government has a lot of control. Government has a lot of data. If they start putting such documents, such articles into into these models, and a voter who's sitting in some part of the country is asking a question and suddenly the information that he's gonna get from a model like this is gonna be biased towards these political parties' agenda, then they will be the biggest winners. That will happen. I don't know how to stop it, but yes, it needs to be addressed.
1: Okay, about the, the first part of the question. And I will
3: be talking about the second one.
1: Thank you. I really think that we will have two players. It will be OpenAI slash Microsoft and maybe Google like this will be the two companies so we will have like a similar scenario to the one with the search engines we will see who will dominate because google they have a lot of potential they have better data and more hardware but they are late actually they are late culturally not technically plus uh, for years they had access to this tech and they purposely did not release it because they're a public company so they're way more cautious but we will have through big centralized AIs which suck out knowledge from our organizations and they will my opinion, eliminate uh, the, some of the products which this industry creates, especially if we are stupid enough to upload our knowledge within these models, and they will commoditize it. And they don't care about that. They have the courage to collect all the global data without licensing that, build models, pay fines, and they don't care. So th- this is this type of organization. About the ethical part, is Alicia.
2: Yeah, so what Alexander mentioned, it actually shows our current biases or very well. And what I think is the reason of that is, for now, mostly tech people work on this type of technology. And I think in the future, possibly now, when we start thinking about this kind of product, this kind of technology, we should, at the very beginning, uh, add sociologists, philosophers that specialize in ethics, in At the very beginning of that project, so they can you know look for the data they make sure they they're not prejudiced, Amazon like the example that I gave with the hiring system, it was Amazon who uh, did it, and they didn't do it on purpose, but accidentally, they trained a model, so the ideal worker was a man, so all the women were automatically cut out from the list, and they didn't notice that until they yeah. it gave them their results so I think it's a very big role of humanists, of philosophers, of sociologists to work on par with tech people, not at the very beginning, at the time when we are not even training the model, but when we are collecting the data that we are going to use. Yes,
1: absolutely.
5: Another question. I have two questions. Carlos. Hi, I'm Carlos. Finally, yeah. <clears throat> therefore, so don't worry. And maybe Alicia, because she said no questions, so we'll okay. ask her. Okay. The first thing is just a small caveat. I don't think fine-tuning is going to be something anyone in our industry or in other industries is going to be doing. I think retrieval augmented generation is something much closer to what we can do, which is grabbing something that exists and then creating the context with our data. And with that in mind, is that I wanted to ask Asim, you mentioned summaries and how it's going to be about who can do the summaries, how can they help us do the summaries faster, right? But nowadays... Uh, we are a niche industry, and one of the entry barriers we have as an industry is that we are a niche, which means that it's not worth it to invest, to have the knowledge base we have to enter the industry, especially for big tech, right? Big tech doesn't enter our industry for specific reasons. They, they don't see us as the cash cow that the investment would afford. but. If we move closer to an LLM being able to do the summaries, which is the example you did, and, and to be honest, as I said before, no one is going to have an advantage by fine-tuning an LLM because we can't. Fine-tuning an LLM costs hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars and would not be feasible for anyone in the industry. So none of us will ever get that advantage. So are we not, should we not be scared about big tech taking advantage of those low value or high value, whichever you want to call it, but creating those summaries that you said that in five minutes could tell them all of the information they have to know because none of us will be able to do it better than them. And the second question I have, well, no, first, Can let's the go first to that first? question. Yeah, let's go to that question. All right. Yeah.
3: He comes from a technology background. He likes to code. He likes to play with stuff and create these products. I come from a business background. I want to use these technologies to deliver services to my clients. I disagree with him that companies like us need to tinker with the code. I believe we have not even utilized the power of the current models that are available to the extent that we need to start tinkering with anything. We don't need to tinker, we have not reached that stage. They are so powerful. He would love to, he's a techie, he would love to. We would not. In fact, uh, we have not tinkered with any of the products. We are only picking up the transformers and trying to ensure how do I get better results? Is it better data? Is it different data? Do I take away some data? How, what, what do I do so that I'm able to get better results? So that's, that's my viewpoint. If you don't do it, somebody else will still do it. So that's your choice. If you think that we, if you don't do it, then Google is not gonna do it. I can promise you even the tools that are available with them right now. In fact, I, I was speaking with somebody uh, who's an expert in this space and he said, you cannot imagine the level that these companies have reached when it comes to analyzing text. He said, text is done and dusted. There's no, nothing more that can be done. It's just that they're releasing these tools slowly to everybody for, 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 for their usage.
5: Yeah, but, but should we be scared about that because-
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I'm saying, so either we're we scared here, right? and we don't do anything about it, or we're scared, therefore we do it first, we do it better, we do it for our clients.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Okay, and I I want
3: to comment something.
1: I I agree with you about the fine-tuning part. We don't need to do that. That's actually the scary part. Uh, Most of these models come; they're so good, even the open-source one, that we can do most of these work just with few-shot learning or zero-shot learning. This is pretty much without any training. You can do prompts and receive answers without any data to be reinforced, with any, without any additional prompts, etc. just to have knowledge how to use technologies like language chains, O2GPT, stuff like this. So pretty much right now, this is data engineering task and a little bit of data science, a little bit. Previously, just a year ago, the composition was completely the opposite. We needed a lot of data scientists and a little bit of data engineering or MLOps. Right now, Completely opposite.
0: Unfortunately, no. we do not have time for the second question from Carlos. We do have to move on. I apologize. This is a live recording, and, and all we can do is keep moving. I'm sure it was an excellent question, and if we had another 45 minutes, I would allow you to ask it. Yeah. I have a question that would... Come with a rapid-fire answer from each of the panelists. Since you're not Carlos, I will allow it. Oh, cool! <laughs> so, thank you. So, in this in this discussion, I have heard like two different approaches to not letting the genie out of the out of the bottle. So, one is about you know we need more regulations, we need more laws, and we need to ring fence and leash it basically. And the other side is, and I think you Asim, said that. Um, you know, ethics and culture will will help us much more with that. Rapid-fire answer from each of you, please. Is it leashing and ring fencing it, or is it culture and ethics? In two words or less. Go. Oh. <laughs> All right, Vlado, you're up.
1: <laughs> uh, for me, ethics, but we. We, without destroying innovation, which usually happens in Europe. In so it should be ethical, but at the same time, we should be able to do it.
3: Yeah.
2: For me, it's ethics also, but I don't really see it happening without
0: any regulation.
3: Asim, do you have an But there's a conspiracy theory that the leader of OpenAI is going to every country, talking to every government official, saying... Let's have regulations. Let's have regulations. Let's have regulations. Don't let others use the data. We've already used it.
1: At the same time, he, he's coming in the and lobbying that he needs to be exempt from the coming regulation. So he goes to the American regulators and says, please regulate us. Everybody else. Or but else. Not but when he comes to the EU, please regulate everyone else, but not, not us. Me, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right, that's a great place to stop. Thank you for the question.
1: This was the end of the interview, and we really hope that the whole conversation was very interesting and very useful for you. A few words about who worked on this episode. The hosts were Alicia Bors and Vlado Petkov. We would like to say thanks to our audio editor, Anton Vele from Govoria Internet. I would like to say thanks to our marketing team, Anna Tsanova and Oresti Patricios. And I would like to say thanks to Identrix, the company which uh, supports media intelligence explain thank you and we will see each other in a month bye bye